you know, when people think they are doing the right thing, they become heroes in their own lifetime and they forget how others may experience them or, or feel about the ways that they are being forced to work. So I think that it's really important that we, that we bring our heart into the workplace as well as our head. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Jonathan Adel is a barrister, journalist and author. Matt Hawkins is a campaigner who's worked on nuclear weapons and marriage equality. In 2018, Jennifer and Matt founded the British organisation Compassion in Politics. Three years on, they've edited a book titled How Compassion Can Transform Our Politics, Economy and Society. It's an issue I'm instinctively drawn to. In 2016, I gave a talk on the politics of love and since then, the rise of hate-fueled populist movements has only strengthened my view that the solution isn't to fight fire with fire. Uh, this is the very first Good Life interview I've done as a doubleheader. Uh, Jennifer, Matt, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thanks so much for having us on. Thank you, Andrew. So uh, tell me a little bit, uh, each of you, about how you came to the issue of, uh, of compassion. Maybe, Jennifer, do you want to go first as to what uh, journey brought you here? Matt and I have both worked on a lot of single-issue campaigns, environmental campaigns, refugee campaigns, housing campaigns, hunger campaigns. And what we came to realise was that it was, it was a many-headed monster and we could tackle one issue, but then the others would then raise their heads more, more um, powerfully. And that if we wanted to have a real impact, we needed to look at the underlying cause. And our analysis is that the underlying cause is the edging out of compassion in most areas of political and policy life, certainly in the UK, but we see it reflected across the world. And we believe that if we could promote and prioritize compassion in policymaking and political process, then we would see a shift across all the social justice issues that caused us most concern. So compassion in politics was born out of this idea that if we can introduce more compassion, we can shift the whole playing field and create great, help create greater equality and um, social justice. And you move very quickly to the substance of what I wanted to talk to you about. But I did also want to weave in some of your background there because uh, you, you're a very successful uh, TV journalist working with ITV. Uh, you've done work on the use of rape as a weapon, weapon of war. Uh, and you've also worked as a, as a barrister as well. Uh, what, uh, what drew you into uh, po policy and campaigning from those, uh, th those areas. So, or to put another way, uh, what drew you away from journalism and the law? I think 
what's driven me throughout my working life has been a desire to tell the truth and give a voice to those who don't necessarily have a voice. And I found myself both as a television journalist. It was a wonderful privilege. I was on television every night. I could respond to world events as they unfolded and had a front row seat, if you like, in, in history as, as it was made during that time that I was a journalist. But I felt that I was always in some way doing harm at the same time. I would persuade interviewees to tell their story because that would help move the audience, which might then in turn impact on politicians, but it wasn't always in their best interests. And I know that in, in the cause of doing good, I did harm. And it was the same at the bar. You know, it was a wonderful privilege again to be part of that elite institution, but I was part of an elite institution and there wasn't much compassion there. You know, I was not allowed to become emotionally engaged with people who, with whom I might be the last person they saw before they were locked away for many years and I longed for a way of creating change that enabled me also to be compassionate and loving and to try and reduce the harm I did whilst trying to achieve good ends. Matt, I mentioned in the introduction uh, the two big campaigns you'd worked on around the banning of nuclear weapons and uh, uh, civil partnerships. Uh, I can't help noticing that uh, one of those has been more successful. Uh, we've, uh, we have uh, civil partnerships, we don't have a ban on nuclear weapons, and uh, the one that's been successful, I suppose, is the issue where uh, a compassionate uh, uh, an, an appeal to a politics of love uh, is much more uh, a natural argument. You know, in some sense, all of the campaigns for marriage equality have been centred around love, not so much for the bans on nuclear weapons. I think that I think that is true, Andrew. Um, on the on the nuclear ban um, front, that has happened to an extent. So, what we were able to secure, or the international campaign abolish nuclear weapons, was able to secure at the UN was a ban on nuclear weapons. Now, what has to happen is you have to get a certain number of states to ratify it, and that's the stumbling block. Um, but I think you're absolutely right in that um, it is perhaps easier for us to have ideas of a politics of love and to be moved by that when it's dealing with something much more immediate, when it could be someone in your family or in your community that you can relate to. Something like nuclear weapons, which um, obviously we're, we're sort of that debate is very much heated up again at the moment um, when we're talking about state powers in other countries and existential crises, much harder to try and relate that to. Although, having said that, ICANN's campaign was very much built around um, values of safety, security, community the, the, that everyone does share. So there was something in that, but you're right. <laughs> Throwing that compassion a little bit further is, is perhaps even tougher. So how do you define compassion? Jennifer? Compassion is an empathetic concern for another coupled with action. And it's really important that last bit, that compassion is an action. It's not a feeling. It involves empathy, but it isn't just empathy. It involves being mindful, having an awareness of the suffering that is around us. But it goes far beyond that. Compassion 
ask that we all stand shoulder to shoulder with those who are suffering. It's non-hierarchical. It's not that we're there bestowing something on those poor suffering people. It is a recognition that we are all essentially the same. We're all equal human beings and that suffering of another is as important to us as, as, as our own suffering or the suffering of someone that we love very deeply. If we look at history, who are the role models who've best practiced a politics of compassion? Well, we can look to those historic figures that we all know and, and see as compassionate leaders, Mandela, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and of course we draw a lot on their work, but there are also compassionate leaders in our community. In the UK, we have the footballer Marcus Rashford, who plays for Manchester United. Not that I'm a football person, but he has done the most extraordinary thing by speaking out in the UK against child hunger and against the government's refusal to provide school meals to those children who are hungry. And this government, our government, which is not given to U-turns, made a U-turn because the public outcry that surrounded his speaking out was so great. And I think one of the things around compassion is that it speaks to something that is innate in all of us. We all develop biologically with a sense of compassion within us. And then the society we live in can either cultivate and amplify that or lock it. So when Marcus Rashford spoke out about the you know, terrible wrong of, of children going hungry in one of the richest countries in the world, he spoke to something that was innate in all of us and it made his argument undeniable by even the government that was hell-bent on, on doing the opposite of what he asked for. Matt, I was struck in your book by a comment that uh, A.C. Grayling, the philosopher, made uh, that a politics of compassion is very much embedded in uh, many spiritual tra traditions. Uh, he talks about Buddhism, Confucianism, uh, the Ubuntu uh, strand of African thought, uh, and of course, Christianity itself. Uh, do you see compassion as in that sense being an older virtue that we're reaching back to? Yes, and I think even older than some of the necessarily the faiths or spirituality or traditions of religion, because one of the things that really motivated me in setting up Compassion in Politics was um, I, I read a book by Professor Paul Gilbert, who's a clinical psychologist called The Compassionate Mind. And in that, he was tracing back thousands and thousands of years to how innate compassion is to each individual and how essential it has been to our survival. We wouldn't have made it as far as we have so far as the species if we weren't able to cooperate and share and help those who are in need. So I think there's a reason why it is at the basis of so many uh, faiths, and that is because there is, there is something in there. There is something that we are all drawn to. Now, the problem is that we can create societies and structures and cultures which completely inhibit our compassion and, in fact, turn us in quite different ways. And so we see our job very much as trying to um, move away from that and to build those structures which actually encourage our natural compassion. So let's go now to some of the critiques of uh, compassion. Uh, Jennifer, where do you see people being 
most uh, hostile towards the notion that uh, the antidote to hate is a politics of compassion. Interestingly, we've had support across the political spectrum, but perhaps the most resistance has come from those on the hard left who see compassion as something that's soft, that is a capitulation, that is a laying down of arms when a fight is required. And I think that's due to a misconception about what politics is about. It, it can, what compassion is about, you know, compassion can be dismissed in much the same way as women throughout the ages have been dismissed, sort of a nice idea, a little bit fluffy, lovely to have around, but not to be used as, as, as the prime prism through which to make decisions. But in fact, that shows a complete misunderstanding or misrepresentation of what compassion involves, because compassion involves enormous courage. It involves leaning into suffering rather than leaning away. And it's founded on, on this belief that we are all of equal worth and equal values. So ironically, although those on the hard left may be resistant to the idea as being too loving of those that they they seek to castigate. In fact, it's founded on exactly the same principles as, as their own political philosophy, one of equality, inclusion, and fairness. Matt, you've written about the tendency of people to laugh at a politics of compassion. Uh, what do you think causes that and, and how do you address it? I think what causes that is that we have a strongly dehumanized politics um by which i mean the structure of our politics itself tends to minimize the role of of, of our or downplays our common humanity we see politicians opposing one another in our parliament in particular literally across the benches shouting and hollering and jeering it's a winner takes all at every election and you and you're encouraged to destroy the opposition and destroy their idea I think that therefore filters out into society in which people tend not to view politicians as human beings with their own emotions and values and things that they will share in common. So, you know, you might we sometimes have conversations with people where we're talking about the need for compassion for politicians, between politicians and from politicians to the public. And I think the idea of showing compassion to politicians um, is has become unfortunately laughable and that's a really really bad situation for us to be in because we need the best people the most compassionate motivated people in our politics working together with the people that they represent not in some sort of antagonistic war against each other in which you know we see politicians as in some sort of stereotyped robotic manner um, we have to engage with the emotions of politicians and public together Yes, I have to say there is uh, something in the, uh, the the notion that it is difficult to form really deep, lasting friendships with someone where every uh, three years in the Australian case or every five years in the British case, you're going to go out there and attempt to make that person lose their job. Uh, I'm not normally friends with uh, people whose main life goal is to try and ensure that I lose my job. Uh, but uh, I imagine in the British context that one of the things that has uh, led people to be more open to a politics of compassion uh, are the, the killings of MPs, Joe Cox and David Amos. 
it's not as though this is unknown. I mean, the IRA killed four MPs in, in their time, but uh, pretty recently, I think there has been a sense that uh, uh, there is uh, a real danger to the practice of politics and that uh, fueling that anger uh, could ultimately not just create a more dangerous workplace for MPs, but also create uh, a different kind of, uh, of political engagement in which MPs aren't uh, meeting face-to-face confidently with a range of constituents as, as, as they should in a good democracy. Absolutely, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, those, those cases have certainly, they were, they were appalling and they drove increased interest in the idea of a compassion or more compassionate politics. And our job is obviously to take that interest and enthusiasm and build it into the long term. But you're right, we we talk to staff and MPs on a regular basis who also say that this new style of engagement of quite, a, you know, forms of abuse that the actual physical assaults that some MPs have had makes them very scared. And it makes them scared of speaking out or, or voting in a particular way. And that's not democracy. You know, democracy is, the, is obviously is about the freedom and the ability to speak your mind on a range of issues, not to be cowered by uh, people who shout the loudest or shout the most abusively. Jennifer, what sort of uh, shape has the, uh, the work that Compassion in Politics does with uh, British MPs taken? It's roughly fallen into two categories. One is looking at the process of politics, as Matt mentioned, and I know that we unfortunately exported our model of politics to you guys, um, this adversarial nature, the fact that shouting and jeering and booing is seen as harmless part of the process. No other workplace would tolerate the forms of behaviour that we see in our political chamber. It's absolutely astonishing and it's become so normalized that we don't even think it's shocking. We just think, oh, there they go again. So we look at processes, political processes like the way debate is conducted, like the whipping system. You know, the whipping system is how MPs are corralled into doing what their political leaders want them to do and you know, there is something in there about the organisation of a party, but certainly in the UK that can involve threats, extortions, bribes to individual politicians, bribes in the sense of, of offering money to projects within their constituency to get them to vote in a particular way. So, you know, we're keen to see that change because we feel that it completely corrupts the political process and we're very keen to see a more inclusive politics where it's easier for women and people from minorities to become involved in the process without feeling as if they are outsiders and excluded from the club. And the other way that we work is on issues where it's clear that compassion is required. So we're doing a lot of work on, on political honesty at the moment and um, issues like refugees, the current crisis in the Ukraine obviously is, is making that a very dominant issue at the moment for everyone in Europe, although our government has not responded very compassionately and has, has made to date no real concessions in terms of providing a haven for those fleeing war and, and destruction. And other issues include online hate and abuse during the pandemic. We help provide refuges 
for women who were fleeing domestic violence at a time when many of the refugees had closed their doors due to the pandemic. We work with hotels to create spaces that would be safe for those that did need to flee violence. So we very much work on two levels. One is on how are we doing politics, because unless we have more compassion in the system, we're unlikely to see compassionate outcomes. And where is compassion needed in society? Where can we make a difference by promoting the obvious need for compassion, which most normal people can see and identify with, but somehow can get lost in the rough and tumble of political debate and tough decision making. Matt, there seems to be clear differences across countries in uh, receptiveness to a politics of compassion or a politics of love. Uh, you look at New Zealand, where Max Harris and Philip McKibben wrote about the politics of love uh, a couple of years ago, and where Jacinda Ardern has been seen by many people, particularly in her response to uh, the Christchurch shootings, as being uh, somebody who embodies a politics of compassion. And yet I think about the US where Marianne Williamson ran a, a politics of love campaign for the Democratic nomination and uh, uh, ended up getting less than 1% of the vote and dropping out in January 2020. So Matt, how do you see Britain as, as fitting into this? How right do you think Britain is for a, a politics of compassion? I think we have, it's a really good question. I think we have lots of challenges. I think I think it's interesting to consider why you have those different trends and you know citing the quite different examples of New Zealand as against the United States our reading of it is that there's some institutional factors the the way that politics is done that Jennifer referred to but also things like the first past the post electoral system driving those choices down into between two candidates a very anachronistic style of parliamentary debate which belongs much more to the 19th century than it does to the current one um, those factors create a culture of politics which is quite antagonistic and competitive and combative uh, but i also think there's something in the in the economic culture that we live in and i think britain and america in particular have adopted this hyper version of uh, capitalism which emphasizes very much the individual over the community the me over the we the idea that we are ultimately all in a, living in a dog-eat-dog -dog world in which we have to go out and fight and succeed and have victory over one another and the extent to which that has been accepted and filtered down into the political and social norm as well I think makes a huge difference to the receptivity to this idea of the politics of love so where does Britain fit in I think we have huge challenges as because of those reasons that I have outlined I think the glimmers of hope that I see for Britain are that we are a country that has believed for a long time in being one of the forerunners of democracy. And I think we can bring people back to trying to understand that democracy is, a, is ultimately an act of compassion. It's about understanding other people, reflecting their views, responding to their views, and it relies on truth and honesty, as Jennifer was referring to. And I think we have an increasingly more pluralistic movement of politics in Britain, in which other parties and other views are being represented and that's you know that's that's an important thing regardless of which party you're in because we need to have lots of different views no one has a monopoly on wisdom so I think um there is a there is that sense that something can change but we do have to tackle those institutional and cultural problems that I referred to. Matt Jennifer referred to a couple of the issues on which uh, politics of compassion might 
gain traction. Uh, the issue of uh, the refugees being one of them. Uh, I'm curious as to um, how a politics of compassion should shape how we think about social welfare programs, uh, and particularly the uh, think of the strivers versus skivers uh, discussion in Britain. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's so important. It's absolutely integral to us. Um, I think there's a few different levels. I think, firstly, on the on the um, on the basic cultural level of why you have a welfare system, that has very much shifted in our country from post World War Two, when it was about providing for everyone and ensuring everyone could fall had had a safety net to fall back on, and a and a recognition that everyone could be vulnerable at any point in their life. To now, where it is a punitive system designed to drive people into work or to embarrass or humiliate them if they are unable to work and to ensure that they have the lowest amount of money possible we have to completely shift that narrative back to that communitarian compassionate ideal that it had before and indeed one of our campaigns is to try and ensure that some better basic socioeconomic rights are actually brought into the uk so that you have a right to food to safety uh, to accommodation um and therefore, I think that then leads to a number of changes that you would try to make to the system. You would humanise it. It's, as I say, it's a very embarrassing, um, long drawn out process. If you try to apply for welfare support in the UK, it's known the emotional and psychological toll that it has. So you would design a system which empowers uh, and recognises the innate need that people might have for support. And you would also draw on the people who are actually using the welfare system are it's, our politics is exceptionally top-down, driven by the designs of people at Westminster without really considering the ordinary, well, not ordinary, the extraordinary, but, but most people out there in the public who might engage with the welfare system. Uh, and then, of course, mm. we need to see it as being considerably more generous than it currently is and move away from this idea that it, somehow it is better for the whole of society if we significantly punish and restrict the uh, freedoms and um the the support that we give to a small section of it because that will never move forwards that ideal so Matt, in uh, britain as in many other countries politicians are now uh the least trusted profession uh why do you think that's come about and and how do you think a politics of compassion could change it i think there are um a number of long-term factors uh an increasingly chaotic globalized world in which businesses have an awful lot of influence over politics or the decisions that seem to be political uh, and politicians struggling to keep up with that making lots of promises at elections which then cannot be delivered and and creating this idea that we have control over uh, or that they and, and we can have control over the events that happen uh, and then ultimately uh, disappointing and I think people have lost faith because of that I think social media has been a real problem um, in that it has enabled the the spreading of um, mistruths and fake news and lies about politicians about what politicians have said and we we've got to really grapple with that as an issue the UK has also had a series of major uh, crises of faith I suppose the Iraq war was one expenses scandal uh, in the early 2000s where politicians were found to have used expenses to buy things like 
duck moats and things like that. Um, uh, and then more recently, we've had issues over uh, parties at Downing Street during the COVID lockdown. And all of those just add to a sense that um, uh, you, you know, it just builds up this sense of public distrust, I think. Um, in terms of the role that compassion can play, I think it really comes back to what I said at the um, I said earlier, which is that democracy is about compassion. Democracy has compassion at its heart. It's about you know government for the people by the people. And um, so, if if we're to have that, we need to have open and honest conversations. We need to understand what it is that the public are feeling. We need to be able to make decisions based on the best available facts, not just on hyperbole and, and lies and mistruths. And I think if people have compassion for their communities and their society and the well-being of their country, they will recognise that the current situation in which it seems that um, the telling of lies, which leads to distrust or distrust in general, which is leading to a fragmentation in society, has to be tackled head on. Jennifer, there's a gender dimension to all of this, isn't there? I mean, most politicians are men, and you're the author of a terrific book with Gillian Anderson called We, a manifesto for women everywhere that talks about nine principles for, uh, for women, honesty, acceptance, courage, trust, humility, peace, love, joy, and kindness. How do you see those principles as applying to a politics of compassion? I think those principles are fundamental to a politics of compassion or a politics of love. You know, without honesty, without kindness, we can achieve nothing. And yet they are not seen as appropriate for the political space. The political space has is hyper-masculine. It's about fighting. It's about winning. It's about destroying your enemy's argument. It is not about what is the best solution we can collectively come up with. You know, adversarial systems are great for testing arguments to, to spot the flaws in things, but they're not good as at creating real solutions. And some of the work we do, which doesn't see the public eye or the glare of cameras, is work with MPs from different political parties to try and find common solutions. For example, on the online hate issue, which we're all experiencing across the world, we work with MPs from either side who are diametrically opposed and mortal enemies. But when it comes to this issue, they find common cause and they work together away from the spotlight, away from the whips that demand that they maintain an antagonistic stance towards the other to really try and, and bring forward the best possible solutions. And we need more of that in politics. Let me wrap up with a set of final questions that I ask all of my guests. I'm going to just uh, throw them to each of you alternately. Uh, Jennifer, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Love yourself. You're okay exactly as you are. You don't need to be anything other than who you are. Who you are is wonderful. So embrace, enjoy and have fun. Did your teenage self not know that already? It seems such a calm composed person I can't quite imagine oh. you not, not not knowing that I would never be a teenager again riddled with self-doubt self-hatred unsure how to fit in always feeling like an outsider 
not sure what the rules are, but desperate not to break them. And I think being a teenager is incredibly difficult and it's so much harder nowadays with social media constantly telling you that you're not enough, that everyone else is having an amazing life and your life is pitiful by comparison. I think it's a very, very difficult age and you've got hormones thrown in, which definitely don't help. Matt, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, this I'm going to slightly skirt the question. Um, it's not something necessarily I didn't believe, but it's something that I have really learned through this process, which I think is the extent to which we are all products of such a long evolutionary history. And that if we don't understand that in the way that we structure societies, organizations, and in particular, our politics, we can be in big trouble. But we also have the potential to create environments which really draw on the very best of our evolutionary brain, uh, that sense of compassion, empathy, desire to help others that we've been talking about. Yes, you write a bit about the way in which compassion is one of our potentials. Uh, do you have, did, did you have the sort of evolutionary history in mind when you were writing that? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. As, um, as I was sort of saying earlier, back when we were living in more hunter-gatherer style societies, and don't worry, compassion politics doesn't advocate for that necessarily, um, but we were so much more egalitarian and, and there is strong evidence that we were really incredibly compassionate and it's something that we are born with. Um, babies are able to show compassion and empathy for others at a very young age and it is the way that we construct society, if we emphasize ideas of competition and greed and selfishness, and we construct workplaces which are built on the idea that you, you know, commit yourself wholesale to that rather than to the needs of your community, that's what you'll get. But if you can recognize the tricky brains that we have and work with them and emphasize those other values and needs, then we can build something quite different. Jennifer, when are you most happy? When I forget about myself, <laughs> I think that so many of the problems we've been talking about come from the ego, come from this constant desire to make oneself safe by having enough or doing enough or securing enough. But actually, the moments of pure joy that I have are watching the spring flowers blossom, playing with the dog and a ball, doing something that my son really loves those are the things that bring me joy and you can't buy any of them matt what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy i think i mean bringing it back really to what jennifer is saying i think trying to keep that balance and not um not overly fixating one way or another on on just on work or just on some other aspects of your life but really trying to bring in as much um humanity to what you do uh so finding opportunities just to you know be with friends it might sound a bit inane but i think that is really important when you when you have those connections and when you're caring for one another and interested in listening to to one another those are the things that keep me going and keep me motivated it is really hard to sort of step out when you're actively involved in a campaign, isn't it? Uh, particularly if that campaign has uh, uh, got an end date, you feel as though you're, you're not, you need to give your all to the cause sometimes. 
And that can result in really toxic outcomes. One of the other things that led me to step away from party politics and into this cross-party way of working was just how toxic campaigns can become when you think you're doing the right thing. If you think it's your job to save the planet, I mean, it's all of our jobs to save the planet. I'm not saying that it isn't. But when you develop some kind of hero complex that you are the person who is going to make things better, you can justify all sorts of modes of behavior that are really unpleasant. You can domineer, you can become incredibly controlling, you can even bully, and all in the name of doing good. And one of the things that we haven't really touched upon is psychology. You know, when people think they are doing the right thing, they become heroes in their own lifetime and they forget how others may experience them or, or feel about the ways that they are being forced to work. So I think that it's really important that we, that we bring our heart into the workplace as well as our head and that we, we work sustainably. You know, the most effective campaigns I know are ones where people are working with their heart, their soul engaged, where they're meditating, where they're taking time to pause and reflect. And that doesn't mean you work less effectively. It means you work more effectively and you don't create harm at the same time as you're trying to enact good. Yes, and it does come down to that question as to whether uh, uh, good ends can ever be just, can ever justify bad means. And uh, the uh, my guess is that uh, you would say not that the uh, way in which politics is done matters as much as the uh, results of, uh, of the legislation. If we don't want to other, if we don't want to create division in society, then we have to work as if we are all one of the same value. So the moment we take a stance on something, we are creating a sense of other. And that doesn't mean that we don't take a stance, but it means that we take a stance, but still have compassioning and an opening to the position of others, no matter how much we might be appalled by what they're saying or the way that we're acting. Otherwise, we just perpetuate the conflict. And it's a very subtle thing because it isn't that we don't fight for the things we believe in, fight being a loaded word there. It's that we do that, it's both and. We hold the space for the other at the same time as trying to bring about the change that we think will be most effective to alleviate suffering. So it's a subtle shift, but you know, we've seen across the world, you know, what happens when one side thinks that they're right and the other is wrong. We see it with Trump in America, the way the nation has become divided almost equally, frighteningly equally between those who support Trump and his lies and those who stand against it, but simply standing against the other just perpetuates the division and the conflict. In the same way in the UK, we had the Brexit debate, again, a very narrow split, but it divided communities and societies and families. And if we want to move to a politics of compassion, we have to move beyond that binary right-wrong situation to a place where we can just say, what are the problems we are all trying to solve? You know, the things that Trump supporters in America and Brexit supporters in the UK want are the same as those who stand against them, security, a decent future for their children, the ability to live without fear of, of want, 
and deprivation. And those are really basic human concerns. And yet we, we use them to fuel opposition. And that opposition ruins the chance of achieving the very things that all of us need, want and deserve. Let me ask a final question. I'll ask uh, each of you the same question. Uh, Matt, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, I think it comes back, Andrew, to that to the book that I mentioned earlier, Paul Gilbert's The Compassionate Mind. And I think not only because, um, I think because it had a dual experience. One, for me, it helped me think, uh, rethink a lot of the things and approaches that I was taking to um to politics and to social issues and to understanding how structures of the society and economy work but also it was just fundamentally really important and helpful for me personally um giving that insight into the way that my brain was working how i was developing certain thought patterns about myself or about the work that i was doing um and obviously it entered and led me towards the work that i now do um so for me uh yeah, that book and his work in general and the work of the Compassionate Mind um, Society and, you know, across the world now was fundamental. And Jennifer, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I'm going to choose a personal one. The person who's most inspired me is my aunt Ilsa, who just died recently at the age of 101. She escaped the Holocaust as a child, came to Britain. So she owed her life, as my father did. My father also escaped the Holocaust. They owed their life to the compassion that was shown to them by the British. But she lived the most joyful life. She didn't hang on to any of the bad experiences that had happened. And when I asked her why she was so irrepressibly happy, she would always say, the answer is love. If you live with love in your heart, you cannot be unhappy. And to know someone so closely who has lived through the worst that humanity can do and yet resolutely believe, believed in the power of love has, has something I carry with me all the time. Jennifer Nadel and Matt Hawkins are the founders of Compassion in Politics and co-editors of How Compassion Can Transform Our Politics, Economy and Society. Jennifer, Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you might like to go back and listen to our episode with Linda Burney, or perhaps our episode with Martha Nussbaum. If you like the podcast, do tell a friend or mention it on social media. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.